Welcome to the Books Talk podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. This program was recorded at the Bethany Branch Library on September 29, 2017. Library Director Pat Leach discusses a selection of books from the American Library Association 2017 Notable Books List. For those of you who don't know, I'm Pat Leach. I'm the Director of Lincoln City Libraries, and I'm here to talk about the American Library Association Notable Books List. So those of you who've heard me speak about this before know that for many, many years, such as 25 or 30 years, when this list comes out at the start of the year I make it a practice to read almost all of the books on the list and then at about this time I begin doing some presentations about the books on the list typically what I do is choose six or seven or eight that strike me as being both good books and most generally of interest to people because there are often really good books on the list that seem like they might have a really narrow focus so I typically don't focus on those. It's a committee each year that changes each year that puts this list together. My understanding if you're on this committee is pretty much what you do for I think it's a two or three year term is all you do is read and you get publishers advanced copies, you get them in a variety of formats potentially electronically as well and then the committee corresponds throughout the year to decide which of all of the books published in a certain time period, and it goes, I think, like November 1st through the November 1st of the next year, which of the books from that year deserve to be considered notable. My plan today is to share six or seven books with you, and my intention is I'll do the fiction and then the nonfiction, and if at the end of my presentation there's a book that I didn't talk about that you want to ask about, that is just fine with me. And do how long does this group typically stay here for? 11.30? Okay, great. I can do that. What I have done recently, because I'm now the host of the NET program, All About Books, is typically I bring along the review that I did for All About Books and use it as the basis for what I'll share with you. What I try to do is save enough time so that I can also maybe share an excerpt or two from some of the books. So that's the plan. And these books are in order on the list by title. So I'll try to present my books in the same order so you can keep up with it. The first one I'm going to talk about, though, is one you may have already heard about, which is Homegoing by Yaa Jesse, And it was one of the One Book, One Lincoln titles this year. Have any of you read this? I know you probably had somebody talk about it before. I'll just say enough about it to say that it's a multi-generational saga. And it starts with two half-sisters in Africa at the time that people were being kidnapped from Africa and brought to the United States as slaves and then follows them generationally from that. Now I am a sucker for this kind of book where each paragraph is, I mean each chapter is almost like its own short story and stands alone. I love when that happens. I would say the weakness of a book like this is that if you find yourself falling in love with one particular character or time frame, you know you just have a short period with that person or time frame. And so I sort of want her to go back and write a whole novel about a couple of the people that she wrote about here. But what I think this book does very well is say, here's a crazy start to two people's lives back in Africa, and then here's what follows from that. And what follows from that really does highlight a lot of the issues that 
remain with us today because of the legacy of slavery in the United States. So that's my short presentation on this book since a lot of you are already familiar with it. Any questions or things that anybody here wants to be sure get said? When she skips like that, couldn't you, couldn't you skip, just follow the character that you want to follow and skip the next one? <laughs> and just see how that person's descendants roll out? Okay, now she's about somebody else. <laughs> That's right. Well, I think the way it is, though, they're fairly self-contained. So once that person's there, they don't really, they might be mentioned, but they don't really show up again. I, I found it kind of confusing. In fact, I could read it again, and I'd probably get more out of it because mm -hmm. all that skipping around had me. Did it, was it was it tough? What I For noticed me. with a lot of books, frankly, is that. And it's, this isn't so much that I reread a whole book, but it is not uncommon for me to get to the end of a book and think, I should read that again. Now that I, now that I get it, I should read it again, and then I'd really get it. She had some chapters about women that you felt like the only thing she was trying to do was get that woman to have the baby that continued the story uh -huh. rather than telling you about that woman. <laughs> Interesting, yeah, that, that maybe that person was just a vehicle and didn't stand yeah. on their own so well. Yes. Well, um, both the strength and the weakness, I would say, is how it's written. But I kind of was trying to step back from this one to say, if it weren't a one book, one Lincoln nominee, would I be pulling it out to highlight? And I think I might. But I would also say a little bit about the fiction on this list generally, which is that the fiction on this list is what I would describe as literary, which means pretty much by definition it's not predictable. Often it's, they're meant to be unique works and they don't really follow a pattern like a series does. And sometimes that really challenges me as a reader, frankly. With the nonfiction, they tend to be a lot more straightforward. And so I really have to gear myself up sometimes for the fiction, not knowing what the tone will be or what the overall group of characters will be. And that's where sometimes I do have to give them two tries. Because sometimes I'll pick one up and I'm thinking, this isn't what I want right now. But knowing what it is, and I can go back to it. I have to say I find it a real relief when I read a novel that is one narrator and yeah. time goes from here to here. It doesn't happen all that often. And it doesn't happen in the other book, I, the other fiction book I brought to talk about. Um, this one is called To the Bright Edge of the World. Has anybody read this one? It's uh, author's name, it's E-O-W-Y-N is her first name, and I listened to interviews with her where it was pronounced Awen. Awen Ivy. This is the second book I read by Awen Ivy, and the two things that her books have in common are settings in Alaska or the Arctic, and then often a little bit of, I think, what you would call magic realism, where things happen that seem supernatural, and you're not quite sure is she saying that this really happened or not. Uh, to the Bright Edge of the World is set in the late 1800s and follows the course of two people. One is a military man who is set the task of exploring up a river in Alaska. It has never been explored by white people before. He's doing this on behalf basically of the army, so he has a couple of army officers with him as he goes up this river to chart the course of the river. Then his wife stays behind at the place where basically he's stationed. So she stays behind with the other um, primarily officers' wives who are there. And the story is told then as their letters to each other, as uh, sometimes there'll be sort of a picture here, but it's told in smaller little snippets instead of all of one piece. So there might be a journal entry, there might be a letter, 
and then there might be a narrator who steps in to speak. What's interesting is that um, Awen Ivy describes how she worked in an old bookstore and there was an area of the bookstore that was sort of this way, you know, where there were snippets of things and then she began to think that her next book could be written by having those items be told. So the way this book works is that the way it's, it's supposedly set up is that it's like about right now, a man has sent a box of memorabilia from, I believe it's Massachusetts, to Alaska to a museum saying, I found this in my great uncle's attic. It details his exploration of a river in Alaska in the 1800s, and I want you to have it because it does no good here. And so there's a little bit of correspondence between these two. And then there's also the telling of the story. So this is one with a lot of different viewpoints and pieces. What really worked for me in this book were a, were a few things. One is um, Awen Ivy just does such a great job of describing the Alaskan landscape and the Arctic. And so part of it was just so interesting to hear the husband talk about what he has seen. And this is just a little excerpt of the way that, that she writes. And this is as if it's from his journal. King's Glacier is a wall of ice with a vertical reach of at least 300 feet. There are rough fractures where in warmer months, large sections must break away, crash into the river. Some cracks stretch higher than a city building. Such a falling mass would surely sink a rowboat, kill a man. The shades of the ice hypnotize. Tillman and I stood beside each other, stared speechless for some time. Even from this opposite shore of the river, a man is pulled into the blue of the deepest fissures. Within are the hues of cold itself. The sight chills me, yet I thirst for more. I wish Sophie could see it. So a lot of those kinds of descriptions of the landscape. And then the other real challenge, there are a couple of real challenges for this group. One is just the challenge of being outdoors in the cold, trying to make your way without roads, without trails, without ways of transporting yourself. And then the other is that the native people of the area, are, it isn't that they're hostile, but it's that they clearly view the world in a different way. And there is a woman who joins them on their track to help them find their way. And she tells this story about how she kills her first husband um, <laughs> because he had turned into an otter and she saw him with his otter wife. And oh. so she killed him. And she wears an otter pelt around her neck. And so there's just sort of this sense of, okay, we're dealing with a different way of seeing the world. There is a, a Native American man who, who kind of shows up at different points and he almost always is not a harbinger of something good. And then similarly, there's a raven that often shows up to Sophie, his wife. And again, not an indicator of something good about to happen. What I love about Sophie is that she tries really hard to maintain her own personality in the midst of this army camp where there is quite a bit of pressure to conform. And what I love about the two of them is that basically they're nerds who love to learn all the time. So you can hear how he's really compelled by those glaciers and wants to learn more and see more. Sophie stays back and she loves to watch birds and so she's really paying attention to what she's seeing. It's also early in the days of cameras and so she makes her pantry into a dark room, which scandalizes several of the other women of the area. 
But what she wants to do is figure out how to photograph birds. And so she has a correspondence with a camera salesperson in Seattle who has a shop to learn how does photography work and how can she do it. So both of them are really engaged in what they're doing. And this is a little excerpt where Sophie has had this wonderful experience of setting up her camera on a bird's nest and she's able to get the moment when the baby bird is first flying. This is what she says. My excitement comes in part from the knowledge of how easily it might have slipped past me. It was a singular event, the tentative young bird at the edge of the nest that allowed me to photograph the unfolded wing. Within seconds of my releasing the shutter, the hummingbird took flight, its wings beating so rapidly as to be invisible to the human eye. I doubt it will ever return to this nest again. What if I had not been at the camera at that precise moment? What if I had hesitated with the shutter, or the day had been overcast, or my eye had been drawn away? What if the wing had extended slightly higher or slightly lower, so as to obscure the gleam along the branch? The dark foliage and gray nest, the bird's small eye and pale breast, the slender black beak, and then the wing, like a hand that has drawn back a curtain. And my gaze is seized by that unexpected, graceful arc of light. When I look at it, this bend of bone and feather and sunlight, a tender place in my heart is healed, even as it is torn again and again a thousand times over. Wow. I know. So um, so Sophie has her own heartaches to deal with while her, hus while her husband is gone. They are able to send each other letters, but they're so delayed that sometimes a letter arrives, you know, months after something has happened, and the response is also quite delayed. Her previous book was called The Snow Child, and it also was set in the Arctic, a uh, young couple who is pioneering there in the 1920s, and they desperately wish for a child. And then it sort of follows the folktale of the snow child, where you always wonder, is this a real child or not a real child? But um, I'm really enthused about her, as you can tell. And um, so that one is to the bright edge of the world. This was the first one off of the list I read because I saw it was by her. So I was like, that's my first. So is she from that part of the world? She is. And when you see her author picture, she's wearing a hat that indicates she knows how to keep warm in the cold. <laughs> now I want to begin talking about the nonfiction. And as I said, I typically choose the books that seem most generally appealing to people. And sometimes with the fiction, I'm challenged on that. So those are my two from the fiction. But now I'm moving into the nonfiction. And the first one I want to talk about is called Blood at the Root, A Racial Cleansing in America. This is such an interesting story, and it's one that's really relevant for us today. It is the story of Forsyth County, Georgia. In 1912, a white woman was raped, and eventually she died. And a, a group of young black men were accused of the crime. One of them was lynched quite quickly. Two others were executed eventually in sort of a public picnic atmosphere. But what followed on that is that there was, how would I put it, an, an, organized, an organized campaign of night riding and intimidation to push every black person out of Forsyth County. And by the end of the year, there were no black people living there. So over 1,000 people lived there who were black. But by the end of uh, the year, they all had been forced out. And the, the general pattern there would be that one of, the, one of the patterns was, and I don't know why this would be, a bundle of sticks would show up on someone's porch. And basically what that said is, it's your turn to leave. 
And if you didn't leave, then night Riders would show up at your house and intimidate you. They might burn your house down. But it was your, it was, it was your signal that, that you needed to go. And there would be other ways that they made clear to somebody that you need to be moving out of Forsyth County. What's interesting is that Forsyth County remained all white into the 1980s. So they enforced that largely through reputation, um, largely through if black people came through, they were followed. Um, in the early 1980s, a black man was shot. He and a black woman had come to coming Georgia to the park. Uh, they worked in Atlanta, and their company was having a function um, there. And they, hadn't, they didn't know the reputation of this area. And when they left, a group of white men basically stopped them and shot at them. And um, it, it was not too long after that a group of people from activists, largely from Atlanta, decided to march in coming uh, to commemorate the 75th anniversary of 1912 and all the events that happened then. Their first march had to be canceled because it became clear that there would be counter demonstrations of very well-armed people. And the law enforcement said, we can't protect you. They did it again uh, when there was pretty much a military presence. And all along, really, it would have been legal for black people to live there, but the insular way of the county was such that nobody did. And so uh, the author tells an interesting story. Patrick Phillips is a poet and a professor, and he's not usually a nonfiction writer. He describes this conversation that he had 10 or 15 years ago with Natasha Trethaway. She's an African-American poet who was the nation's poet laureate for a while. And the two of them were in a taxi cab. And this is a, how he describes a conversation that, that they had. He says, this book would not exist without a kind but determined push from Natasha Trethaway, who challenged me more than a decade ago to tell the story. Having grappled with America's racial history so often in her work, Natasha turned to me during a cab ride in New York City and asked why it was that she, a southern woman of color, wrote about blackness, yet I, a white man from one of, the, one of the most racist places in the country, never said a word about whiteness. Why, Natasha asked, do you think you're not involved? I'm ashamed to recall how I defended my silence, and I am proud to say that her question helped me to begin this project. So um, Patrick Phillips' family had moved into Forsyth County, Georgia, when he was in second grade in 1977. And he had also observed that there were no black people in this county, which struck him as odd and interesting. But it does compel him then to take a year off. He takes a sabbatical uh, from Drew University in New York to do the research for this book. A couple things I would say about that. There really are few records that deal with certain kinds of transactions. So there are newspaper articles. There are deeds. There would be arrest records court records, that kind of thing. He interviews quite a few people whose ancestors maybe were part of the original 1912 activity, but there's really not a lot of history from, say, the black families who left. They didn't leave a lot of record for here's what happened to us, here's what we decided, here's how all of this came to be. So he relies a lot on documents, and I have to say he's a good nonfiction writer. He cites his sources, he explains how he got places, um, and what the record indicates. There are a few photographs from the time that he uses. But here's what's interesting to me. Um, when he talks about this, he really approaches it as an outsider. So he doesn't really include himself 
in thinking about how is this perpetuated and how do people allow that to continue to happen. So it's interesting that he still writes it at a distance, even though Natasha Trethewey had challenged him to think about it from his point of view and his involvement. So I just found that really, really interesting. I found myself, and this is a question that you've probably heard me reflect on before, this is not an easy book to read. It's a really tough situation, and he doesn't shirk away from the violence that happened to people. He's pretty graphic in his descriptions, and yet it's a compelling story. It really is. So um, I would say given its relevance to a lot of things going on in the country right now, I think that it probably deserves a little bit more attention than it's gotten. So once again, that title is Blood at the Root, A Racial Cleansing in America. Then the next nonfiction book is also one where the subject matter is a little bit difficult. This one is called Evicted, and it's by Matthew Desmond. This book is an interesting exercise that Matthew Desmond did. Now, I'm going to double check. He is a professor of the social sciences at Harvard, so that's his background. And he became interested in the housing policy in the United States and how it impacts poor people. So he spent a lot of time in Milwaukee in 2009, and this book is the outgrowth of that. So basically there are three sections for each family that's following this book. At the first, they find a new place to live. In the middle, they get evicted from that place. And then at the end, they find another new place. He spends a lot of time with the people in this story and begins to describe what is it that in our system, in our structure of housing that makes it so difficult for people who are low income to find a good place to live, to be able to afford that. What is it that gets them pushed out and then how do they find the next place? So he's dealing with not people who get housing vouchers from the federal government or who live in federal housing. These are people who don't have those kinds of supports and aren't participating in that. And so these are people who live in often very substandard housing. And often they spend around 70 to 80% of their income on their housing. So that means that they're very fragile as far as what the rest of the money goes for. So basically he's just following these people, telling their stories. And I ended up finding this a surprisingly readable book because he's such a good storyteller. And the truth is, almost everybody's life, if told by a good storyteller, takes on kind of a life of its own that, that is compelling. So in, in this book, a lot of what he does is just allow uh, these people's stories to be told. And from time to time, he will step in with a little bit of background information. But primarily, it's about the various people that he follows. A few of the things that, that he does as well is he follows some of the landlords. So there are certain landlords that uh, specialize in this kind of housing. And there are interesting relationships between the tenants and landlords in that a landlord maybe is willing to allow a tenant to be laid on their rent if the tenant is willing not to report that the housing has bad plumbing or that the electricity has been cut off. So there's sort of this back and forth of um, the arrangements that, that, let things, that let things work out. He, he explores uh, some people who tend to live in mobile home parks and trailers people who tend to be in houses, people who tend to be in apartments. And um, his relationship both with the tenants and landlords makes it pretty interesting reading, frankly. A few of the things that, that he talks about, uh, too, is that the presence of children very much increases a tenant's chance of being evicted. And 
He begins this book with the story of two boys who are outside in a winter day, and they throw a snowball at a man's car. The man stops the car, gets out, chases them to their apartment where he kicks the door in. They get evicted because the landlord can't allow that kind of behavior to happen. Then similarly, later in the book, after they've found housing again, one of the boys goes through a traumatic time. He leaves school during the day, so a truant officer comes to the house to call on the family. What the landlord sees is that a police officer has visited the house, and so they get evicted because landlords can't allow a lot of police visits or they become a problem property. So there are just all of these situations that happen, and uh, a lot of the people who are tenants are right on the edge, and so um, they're, they end up facing homelessness often. And so he, de he details what is it, what happens when the sheriff gets called to evict somebody, what happens prior to that, what kind of arrangements do people make, and what is the outcome of that. And then at the end of the book, he puts forward his suggestions for what he thinks should happen so that this ends up not being such a revolving door of misery, frankly, and what he thinks the government could do to step up and, and make some changes here. I, as I said, was surprised by how readable this ended up being, and I think it's because he's a good storyteller. And ultimately, he really respects the people that he talks about. This was an interesting little bit from the end of the book where he has a pretty extensive afterword, an epilogue, and that's where he talks about his ideas for how some of this could be solved. But a lot of times people would ask him, well, how did people come to trust you and allow you to be present for so many parts of their lives? And he writes, the harder feat for any field worker is not getting in, it's leaving. And the more difficult ethical dilemma is not how to respond when asked to help, but how to respond when you are given so much. I've been blessed by countless acts of generosity from the people I met in Milwaukee. Each one reminds me how gracefully they refuse to be reduced to their hardships. Poverty has not prevailed against their deep humanity. So that ends the book, but in many ways it sort of sets the tone for how he tells the story from Evicted. The next one I want to talk about is Hidden Figures. I know some of you may have read this because the movie came out in the last year. So how many of you have read the book, Hidden Figures? Okay. Okay, well, so if you've seen the movie, you know that this is about uh, black women who were employed by NASA um, and the, the movie really centers on the era from the early 60s of getting rockets into orbit. But in, in this, the longer book, Margot Shetterly starts back during World War II. And what was going on then was, of course, a lot of men were in the military. And the, uh, this was prior to NASA when it was more about airplanes and uh, speed and that sort of thing. They needed people to be doing math and to be doing higher level math. First they ended up hiring women, which previously they hadn't done too much of. And then they still needed people, so then they ended up hiring black women. So Shetterly chooses four or five women really to follow in this book. And these were typically women who were math teachers in black schools. A few of them had different backgrounds, especially later one came in who had an engineering background. But uh, they were refer referred to as computers. So this was before the day of you know, IBMs. Well, they were computing. They were computing. That's it exactly. So they would be given a long equation uh, that had to do with aerodynamics or propulsion or avionics, and then they would do the math for that. And 
it was a really good job for a black woman at that time. It was unusual to be able to work for the federal government at that kind of a level, and they, they became pretty much indispensable. And then as, uh, as the action moved from war and military planes and began to move toward um, aerospace, those women continued to work in, in the field, at this case starting off in Langley and staying in the Virginia area. Shetterly talks a lot about the work that they do and what the work was like, but she also talks about their personal lives, who, who they were before this happened, how they relocated their families, how they set up their new lives there if that's not where they were from, and also gives a, a very thorough view of how they helped each other out, that if somebody new moved into the area for a job, there would be people to help that person find housing and figure out the schools and introduce them to their clubs or their churches. So there was a real community of people there. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know that there are also issues because it's in Virginia, it's the South, and it's still a place where there's a certain level of segregation. And so there, there's a scene where one of the computers to go to the bathroom has to like run across several blocks and then run back because there's not a restroom for her in their building. And he also talks about how a lot of the men who were employed there were primarily from outside. They weren't necessarily from the South. And so they tended to have a different point of view. So in the movie, there's a scene where one of the male engineers pulls the colored only sign off of the restroom, or the whites only sign, to say, you know, if you're working here, you can use this restroom. Um, but all of the women detailed in the book um, have sort of their own stories of how they got there and then the work that they did. And then some of them became very indispensable. And it, it just points out how a person um, maybe goes through a life where the culture is set up for you to be seen a certain way, but when you're put in a position of stepping up, and you do step up, it's recognized. So one of the computers, one of the women who was a computer, John Glenn, insisted that she double-check the numbers before he went into orbit. And he really wasn't willing to say, yes, I'll go, until he knew that she had done his numbers. And the other ones um, sometimes had to fight for promotion or had to fight to be made supervisors because there was still some expectation of where a woman's place would be within the structure. And then some of the women went back to school to get, say, engineering background so that they could do more work and do higher level work. For instance, with uh, one of the women detailed in the movie also, her background was math, but she clearly had an understanding of the engineering that they were doing. And so she didn't just complete the equation, but she could say, this is how the equation should be set up. And so those kinds of skills were recognized. Now, one of my favorite sections of this book, though, is that one of the sons of one of these women uh, was in the soapbox derby, and his mom helped him win. So this is uh, a little description of, of him. Wearing a black and white crash helmet and the official race t-shirt, Levi Jr. sailed across the line at a relatively blazing 17 miles per hour. His family fell upon him in a crush of hugs and celebration. To the inquiring and surprised local reporters who came to hear from the winner of the Virginia Peninsula Soapbox Derby, Levi Jackson confided the secret of his victory, the slimness of his machine, which helped him to lower the wind resistance. What do you want to be when you grow up? The Norfolk Journal and Guide reporter must have asked. I want to be an engineer like my mother, Levi said. And then he goes on, she goes on to, um, to write this. Achievement through hard work, social progress through science, possibility through belief. When Levi reached out and took hold of the first place trophy, 
Mary witnessed in one proud and emotional moment the embodiment of so much that she held dear. Of course, Mary also knew that her son was a ringer the two of them had been building to win. Brainbuster's kids were supposed to come out on top in a race like this, even if the Brainbuster was a woman or black or both. Being part of a, and this is in uh, capitals, black first, was a powerful symbol she knew just as well as anyone. And she embraced her son's achievement with delight, but she also knew that the best thing about breaking a barrier was that it would never have to be broken again. So um, a good combination of describing the situation, but then stepping back to say, here's the significance of it. So that one is Hidden Figures by Margot Lee Shutterly. Was the author able to interview those women? Yes, she was able to interview them. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. And then um, she also points out, this is the kind of thing that makes a librarian go, oh, that um, there were a lot of interviews and things done several years ago that kind of got tossed in a cardboard box and then you know put on a shelf. And so she had to go through some things that maybe gotten damp, hadn't been taken care of as she did her research, but yes, she was. And some of the women detailed here have been recently um, honored and buildings named for them and that kind of thing. Uh, Louisa is the next one I want to talk about, The Extraordinary Life of Mrs. Adams, and it happens to be by somebody whose name is Louisa Thomas. Now, this might be one of my favorite books of the year from the Notable Books list. It is a biography of Louisa Adams, who is married to John Quincy Adams. And Picture the scene in the late 1700s. Picture that Louisa was born the same year as Jane Austen and kind of into the same world as Jane Austen where girls were raised to be wives and to spend a lot of time in the drawing room and uh, to be social, that that was often their, their role and maybe to be musical or artistic to a certain degree. Louisa is born in England, although her parents are American. Her dad is an importer-exporter, so they live a pretty opulent life or pretty prosperous life, even though her dad's business is the kind where one ship that gets lost at sea well, could almost bankrupt him. So Louise is raised in that, in that era and in that kind of a place with sisters. And as she becomes a late teen, John Quincy Adams is in London representing the United States there. And so he's doing some treaty work and that kind of thing. And he begins calling on her family. And it becomes clear that she's the one that he becomes interested in. And then eventually they marry. She has never been to America at the time that she marries him. She's only been in England. But his work takes them to a lot of places. So they originally are supposed to go to Portugal. They end up in Russia. And then she has to make her way to Paris uh, by herself at a certain point. And then they come to the United States. And she becomes a politician's wife there, basically. And also, keep in mind, she's a daughter-in-law of Abigail Adams. And um, a few things about Louisa. She was physically ill a lot in her life. So there would be periods where she'd go months without being able to leave her bed. She gave birth to three children, but I think had between 12 and 15 pregnancies. So she had a lot of miscarriages at a time when medical attention for that um, would not have been easy. The, there was a kind of a constant source of tension between her and John Quincy, which was that he was from this political dynasty already in America where he was raised to be of service to his country. That was the most important thing, and to have America be first in his mind. He feared that Louisa was too easily influenced and that say when she was at court in Russia that she would be too swayed 
by the jewels and the influence and the atmosphere of court. And in fact, people in America generally worried that the people that they sent to European courts would be changed by the experience and would lose their sense of, I suppose, what comes to mind is uprightness, sort of, of representing this new country which has made a break from all of that. So early on, he kind of says, Louisa, I'm, I'm not sure you're up to this. And so she ends up having this ongoing sense of inferiority about that. And then this feels like it's taken from a Jane Austen novel. Her father promises a dowry. He has very bad setbacks just before they marry, so she never receives her dowry. So that makes her feel even more as if she owes John Quincy and that she's not his equal. Okay, we'll get them. Now they're back in America, and the way that presidents were selected at the time was that they did not politic. They did not run for office. That was considered unseemly. So basically, your good record spoke for you. And um, he became a member of Congress. Eventually, it became clear that he, like his father, uh, should run for president. But running for president didn't mean the same thing at the time. And so Louisa ends up being social on his behalf. And she's sort of shown a gift for this previously, that she's able to hold her own at court. She's able to understand what's going on in the politics of the place. And so she has a lot of gatherings at their home, and she becomes a conduit. Then that John Quincy kind of holding himself apart from that, politicians will talk to her, and then she will talk to him, and, and it works that way. So she becomes key in promoting his political career. But then, as I mentioned, she's also the daughter-in-law of John and Abigail Adams. And at first, Abigail really doesn't care for Louisa. And part of it is that she expects that Louisa will run an American farmstead, an American home, which would be in a farm, and that Louisa should be able to manage the servants, manage the workers, cook, so do all of those things that really is not in Louisa's background. And it takes quite a few years, but eventually they do come to an understanding of each other where they later in life acknowledge that they probably didn't give each other the benefit of the doubt early on. What I love about part of what made that happen is that Louisa... Uh, at first, say in her letters to John Quincy, seems really wooden and stiff and not really worth reading. But eventually, she comes into her own as far as trusting more her own instincts as to what she observes. She's more willing to be a little bit more emotional about what she observes, and she ends up being a really good writer. So that eventually, John and Abigail Adams want her to send them her journal pages because she's able to describe who she's seen and what they've said and to do it in a way that's really compelling and interesting. And in fact, three different times, Louisa sits down to write her own life and just doesn't get very far. Once because she's just at a really awful, a, a difficult time, and at various other times she just doesn't come forward. But as somebody who reads a lot, I, I love the part that it was her writing that kind of brought her back into contact with her in-laws who ended up greatly respecting and admiring her. John Quincy was uh, often sort of a, a stick in the mud, I think it's fair to say about him. Um, he could, he was very smart, he was very adept, he got some really great work done on behalf of our country, but he wasn't always the person that people gravitated toward. And so again, Louisa was able to sort of manage that to a certain degree and she was also quite astute, and so she was able to do that in a way that was really effective. I didn't know anything about Louisa Adams before I read this book, frankly. And what Louisa Thomas does really well, and this is what I almost always look for in a nonfiction book, is who is the person who can tell the story so that that story has a really strong thread and yet always weave in information that you need 
without losing the story. So she has to talk some about treaty, she has to talk about politics, she has to talk about geography, she has to talk about a variety of things, but she really never pulls it too far away from Louisa, and so the story remains strong. So I found myself really enjoying this book, really looking forward to getting back to it, and I think that's a tribute to Louisa Thomas and the way that she um, writes and tells the story. I'll share a couple of excerpts here. So this is John Quincy talking with Louisa about his worries about her. He cautioned her that when she went to a European court, she would have to suppress some of the little attachments to splendor that lurk at your heart, perhaps imperceptibly to yourself. She heard in these words the suggestion that he thought she was vain, impressionable, shallow. She was hurt and said so. She was not wrong about his suspicion, though in fairness, neither was he wrong. She did like luxury. But she knew what he was implying. He wasn't quite sure she was fit to be a Republican American minister's wife. The insinuation riled her, which he disliked. Their correspondence grew sharper, softened only slightly by offering surrender. Between us two, my lovely friend, let there be peace, he wrote. <laughs> my lovely friend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that also points out that a lot of the record a lot of the record is through letters, and so it makes me think what's going to happen now as somebody tries to find all of our emails or texts to each other. Then um, this is a little bit about her writing. She was not, though, merely submissive. Writing from Philadelphia, humming with news and opinions, she converted what restricted her into a liberating force because she believed her emotions were legitimate, even if her thoughts were not. She said what she wanted and then excused what she said as the effusion of her feelings. She wrote daringly frank letters. Her words would not pause for a comma, for a break, for a breath. Her thoughts and insights and observations would overtake one another in a great onrush, unruly and free. At the end, she would append a line that dismissed everything she'd said as nonsense, the meaningless ravings of a woman. She slipped into satire or hyperbole or used metaphors to mock powerful men. A little bit about how she did that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the case that she relies on their writing, and I think that that really livens things up a lot. So not just here's what happened, but here's exactly what these people said about it. So um, again, I think this might be one of my favorites from the list so far, and that one is Louisa by Louisa Thomas. Then my last one is one I just recently finished from a little bit earlier time period. This one is Valiant Ambition by Nathaniel Philbrick. Its subtitle is George Washington, Benedict Arnold, and the Fate of the American Revolution. So um, I don't know if any of you have read nonfiction by Nathaniel Philbrick. He had a recent book about the little bighorn and another one about the Mayflower. He does a great job of, being, of very thoroughly laying out the chronology of things that have happened and going back to primary documents to make sure that he's got it all laid out appropriately. Now, I would say that he's not necessarily a beautiful writer, but he's a very serviceable writer. And in this book, what he does a good job of, to my mind, is when you think of the popular conceptions of George Washington, hero of the American Revolution, everybody loved him, everybody revered him, he was fabulous. The conception of Benedict Arnold, traitor. And so what Philbrick does is he tells a longer story. So he follows both men. And he kind of, I, list, I start off listening to this book, and he starts off with a lot of battles and the course of sea battles. And frankly, it was, it was hard for me to follow listening. I did a lot better when I was reading the book. So he starts off with George Washington in New York, 
New York ends up falling into British hands. George Washington has a lot of military setbacks, and this would be in the period right around 70, 1776 through 1779 or so. A lot of military setbacks. The Continental Congress is completely questioning him, sort of like if he's a Husker football coach is sort of the, um, the model, the analogy I would make. He gets a lot of questioning by the Congress. Um, there's a Continental Army, but all of the states have their own militia that is loyal to the state. So he may need them to do something, but the truth is if, that doesn't, if that's not great for Connecticut, they're not going to do it for the country. He doesn't get the money that he needs or the resources that he needs. And then Philbrook also points out that Washington had a terrible temper. And it was one of the jobs that he had to do to maintain his temper. But from time to time, he completely loses it. So Philbrook kind of describes what happens when that happens. So that's sort of what's going on with George Washington at that time. Then Benedict Arnold at the time is a very successful officer. He wins an important naval battle on Lake Champlain. He is able to be very daring, and he often takes a very daring course and has a lot of success with that. And yet, he's not able to get the military promotion he deserves because Congress has decided that only two people from each state can be, I believe it is, a general, a major general. He is from, he's in the Connecticut group. He can't be promoted. So he sees a half dozen other officers promoted because they're from other places with an open slot, and he is not. He gives up a lot of his own fortune for the war, uh, some of that voluntary, some not, but it, it's the case that he's not able to maintain his business. So he's out fighting on behalf of his country, losing money, not necessarily being paid. His wife dies uh, around 1776, leaving him with two children, and his sister then is raising his children. Washington really needs Arnold, and there's a point at which Arnold is trying to retire or resign from the military, and Washington is like, no, really, I need you. And so he decides to stay, but basically what Philbrick is doing is setting up the circumstance to say, we think of this man as a traitor, but here's what went into it. Here's what he had been dealing with. So there's a point here where where Washington realizes this thing about promotions. And he writes, Washington eventually learned that the promotions had been based on a newly instituted quota system by which each state was allotted two major generals. Since Connecticut already had two officers of that rank, the Continental Congress, in its wisdom, had determined that their top-ranking brigadier general, who also happened to have the best record in the army, should suffer the humiliation of watching five of his lesser peers move past him in the ranks. Henry Knox wrote to his brother that this most infallibly pushes Arnold out of the service. At Washington's repeated urgings, Arnold promised to do nothing rash, but admitted that he could not help but view the non-promotion as a very civil way of requesting my resignation. That's what's going on at the time. And then again, uh, Philbrick sort of steps in to follow both of them. And here's something I hadn't realized. He writes, Washington had finally hit upon a way to win this seemingly unwinnable war not through military brilliance, but by slowly and relentlessly wearing the enemy down. Throughout the month of June, Washington displayed a cool resolve that was in stark contrast to the fiery pugnacity of just a few months before. Not everyone was sure they approved of Washington's unwillingness to engage the enemy. 
But again, thinking about what was the thought process at the time, what was going on then, really changes, really changed my view of who George Washington was. It's like I can remember elementary school, that song, First in War, First in Peace, First in the Hearts of His Countrymen. I will spare you my singing of that song. Um, but you know, you look back after all of this has happened, and what Philbrick's job is to do is to put it in a context where you understand what was going on at the time. Before, before anybody knew that it would really become a country that would last for 200 years, what was going on at the time. Then there are a couple of other things that he details that I found really interesting. One is that there were quite a few cities that went back and forth between British and continental law at the time, and that often, often it was really hard on people. So this is what he writes about Philadelphia. But as quickly became clear in Philadelphia, a revolution aimed at freeing a country from political and economic oppression had the potential to create a new form of tyranny, in this case a purely democratic form of government unhindered by any checks and balances allowed the majority to run roughshod over the liberties of the minority, whether they be the once privileged members of Philadelphia's upper class, like the Shippens, or the city's pacifist Quakers, who for religious reasons refused to sign the loyalty oath, anyone suspected of an equivocal neutrality or even worse, outright Toryism was put under careful watch and in several cases exiled from the state. So what going on there? And um, he does then get to the point at which Benedict Arnold marries a woman, Peggy Shippen, whose family are loyalists. And he's had it up to here with what's been happening to him in the army. And honestly, he even seems to have a true feeling that to save the United States or to save the people, it, that war cannot go on. So he decides to work for the British. And Philbrook details how that was sort of set up, how that happened, and then how it fell apart. Um, that basically he was caught before he was able to do much for them. He was the commander at West Point, and so he had planned as a demonstration of what he could do for them to basically turn West Point over to them. And in the course of the communications for that, he is found out. I liked this book for, again, the story behind the story and for getting underneath it. I wish that Philbrick was sort of a more masterful storyteller, but he is somebody I trust in that I think he does good historical research, and I think that he's careful not to make claims that can't be supported by that research, so I thought that was interesting. I really like when the, when the Notables list has two books like this that really go together well so that you get a better sense for maybe a time or a place. I've heard Nathaniel Philbrick speak. I heard him talk about the book he wrote about the Battle of the Little Bighorn. One of the things he did for that book was he went to the site and he, he rode the site on horseback. He said he felt like to really understand what was going on there, he needed to be on a horse viewing, viewing what happened. And I have to admire that he's that thorough in the sense of wanting to, to be clear about here's what happened and here's what it would have been like for the people who lived there. So at the end of the day, I really ended up enjoying Valiant Ambition even though I started it but couldn't finish it as a listener, I was able to read it and enjoy it as a reader. So those are the books that I chose to bring forward. I'm curious to know if any of you have any questions about any of those or if there's a book on this list where you think, oh, I wish you would talk about any of these others. Feel free to ask or if you see um, something that you've read that you want to mention or if you want to mention anything about any of these books that maybe if you've read and you had any thoughts about them. Roddy. How are the choices? Oh, how were the choices made? Did they all have to be current? Yes. Yeah, so a committee is named each year from the reference and user services uh, section of the American Library Association. 
then people nominate books, and that can be librarians can nominate books, publishers can nominate books, but they have to be published within a certain period. So then the committee assigns people to read the books, and then eventually they keep honing those lists. It's kind of similar to the One Book, One Lincoln Committee in the sense of starting off with a pretty wide group and then slowly narrowing it. And at the end, then 12 fiction, 12 nonfiction, and a couple of poetry. But it's just regular people, regular librarians who are doing that work. And then I think that they stagger the terms so that as new people come on every year as experienced people go back off. Um, but what I love about the list is that there are always some books that I really hadn't heard much about and they're really good. And so I think, man, I wouldn't have had that experience if I hadn't seen it on this list and gone ahead and read it. And I, I, again, I really appreciate it if the list has a few things that are sort of interconnected to kind of take Underground Railroad and home, home Going and Blood at the Root, you know, some of those to give sort of a more round view of of circumstances. I just admire that you do this every year. Oh. I think that discipline Thank you, is extraordinary. I like it. So that works. It works out well for me. I'm just looking over the list to see if there's anything here because often after I've chosen the books I'm going to talk about, then I'll look at the list and think, well, now why didn't I bring In the Dark Room? Or why didn't I bring Shirley Jackson? Um, because, uh, you know, the books that make the cut one day might not make it the next. The Firebrand and the First Lady. The Firebrand and the First Lady. That's on the nonfiction. I haven't finished that book. Um, it's the portrait of a friendship between um, Polly Murphy or Polly Murray and Eleanor Roosevelt. And I have to make a confession here. The cover of that book is so uninteresting, and I think that really colored my impression of it. I started it last year before it was on the list because it was you know somebody had said that's an interesting one. So I that's when I still have to go back to. Um, but basically, it's the story of Eleanor Roosevelt became friends with a, a black woman who was, who was an activist to some degree. And they developed a friendship that went over the course of quite a few years. And I think that uh, Polly was often pushing for action, and often Eleanor Roosevelt was in the position of being pushed. And, um, and yet they remained friends. And I think that'd be another one that would go well with some of the other books that have highlighted the African-American experience in, in the United States. Well, you're welcome. You know, it's always fun to come to Bethany and be with the book group here. So thanks for having me once again. I appreciate it. Oh, you're already book Okay, good. Well, I appreciate that. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from Lincoln City Libraries. If you would like to comment on this or any of our podcasts, you can do so by visiting our podcast page at lincolnlibraries.org slash podcasts, where you can also download our podcasting theme music for use as your ringtone. You can become a fan of our podcast by searching for Lincoln City Libraries Podcasts on Facebook. Mm -hmm.